Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris Papa. I'm alone right here. I'll just me and Julio. Say hi, Julio. Julio doesn't talk. Oh, there he goes. Uh, we're excited to launch the Impact Real Estate Podcast Summer Series, where we bring back some of our favorite interviews from the previous iteration of this podcast. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be reintroducing you to some of the titans of our industry with the hope that their stories will continue to impact all of you. As always, any love you can send the podcast via like, share, comment, or review across iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or the jacksonlucas.com website is always appreciated. For now, thanks for tuning in and have a great summer. All right, folks, I am your host, Chris Papa. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Jim Simmons. Jim is the managing partner and CEO at Aslan Capital Partners in New York City. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing well. How are you, Chris? I'm good. How is uh, my beloved New York today? Today, the weather is great. Um, people are staying pretty masked up and... Uh, Hopefully, we'll be out of this morass at some point in the relatively near future. I hope so. I mean, I'm heading back there. You said you just came back after a period of uh, somewhere else. So I think people are starting to head back. I know a lot of people in my company, you know, they were living in other states. They moved back to their parents' house or something, and now they're, they're all back in the city. So hopefully, hopefully it's coming back um, in full force. Uh, can you explain to the audience what Aslan Capital Partners is? Sure. Um, We are a private equity um, investment firm that specializes in real estate. So we, um, in general, really like and specialize in multifamily existing assets um, where we can add value by acquiring an asset, improving it, and then um, ultimately selling it for a return for ourselves and our investors. Any particular type of multifamily or any locations or vintage? Large-scale multifamily, so anywhere from 200 to 2,000 units. Um, we are primarily in the top 20 cities across the United States, Um we are in the value add space, which means that we are buying assets where we can improve them. So generally speaking, they range from anywhere from 20 to 50 to 75 years old and vintage. Um, and we are bringing them to what we believe to be a best in micro market standard. And by micro market, we mean the neighborhood, the immediate neighborhood that the asset is located. in. Gotcha. And I, and we first met, at least I first heard of you, I was working, uh, with Apollo real estate advisors, I remember, and, uh, you were there for a while. And, uh, I know you guys were specializing in stuff in, I think, Northern Manhattan, right? At, at, at that point. Is that a, That's correct. That's correct. Is that a, I'm just looking through your history here. I guess maybe we can dig in a little bit, but like prior to that, but it seems like you have, you were a member of the, um, upper Manhattan empowerment zone. You are a 125th Street Business Improvement District, uh, board, one of the board of directors. Is that an area of Manhattan that you know well, or how did you get more involved with, with that specific area? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, um, secure this route. Um, 
the story is is that um, I went to business school um, in Chicago, and the summer in between my first and second years, I ended up living um, in Morningside Heights, and um, I shared a brownstone with a couple of friends, and um, I got to know Upper Manhattan a little bit. And a very good friend of mine, right before I went back to school, purchased a brownstone um, in uh, what's called Hamilton Heights. Mm-hmm. And so anyone who's seen the, the, the show Hamilton, and we keep speaking earlier, yeah. um, Hamilton, uh, his house is actually down a block from where I live now. But oh, cool. um, as, a, as a part of, of the exercise of learning the area and wanting to acquire a brownstone like my friend did, um, I did some research. And uh, Upper Manhattan just really intrigued me. It's history. Um, it has really great housing stock. Um, the block that I ended up buying on um, has been consistently named one of the top 10 blocks in all of New York City. And so after getting to understand uh, the community and uh, what it had to offer, uh, I ended up buying a brownstone, moving up here, and through those relationships, um, I met people at the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone, and so I started there, and so I've been here in the community ever since. That's great. How is the Upper Manhattan? How's it doing up there? How are you guys doing? Is there uh, is there a lot of? Um, we're not going to focus just solely on that, but I'm curious. Is, is there? I like it up there as well. Um, is there a lot of community associations like? improving the areas and adding value and uh, anything particular up there that's going on to, I mean, what, what's the goal, I guess, of, of those different, uh, you know, the, the business improvement district is to just attract new business or is there a lot of business? Well, well I think, you know, the, the interesting thing about upper Manhattan, about the communities that comprise it, which include central Harlem, East Harlem, West Harlem, um, Washington Heights and Inwood. So that's Upper Manhattan, but one can colloquially say north of 96th Street. So north of 96th Street, um, if you talk to someone who lives in Midtown or downtown, they would talk about Upper Manhattan, or at least they used to, like it was a separate borough, like it was Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, but it's on the island of Manhattan. Um, and from a population perspective, and my numbers are probably a little dated, um, if it were a city in and of itself, it'd be a city of the size of Denver or so. And, yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's a lot of people. And um, when um, I joined the Empowerment Zone in the early 2000s, um, what really started to happen was people started to discover, people, businesses, institutions started to discover uh, the great things about um, the individual communities, um, they started to um, attract some investment. People started to move here. Um, you started to see goods and services arrive that hadn't been here for a long period of time. And so it became a much more livable place for a lot of people. It became uh, attractive to a lot of people who heretofore may have moved to Brooklyn, may have moved to Queens. Um, or may have chosen to live someplace downtown. So um, as 
um, Upper Manhattan became an alternative and a viable alternative, and even Jersey for that matter. Um, communities start to grow and stabilize um, and become really a good place to live. That's not to say it wasn't a good place to live previously, because I've been here living for almost 25 years now. So it's it's always been a great place to live. But um, one thing that we were lacking or some of the things that we were lacking was just the basic goods and services. So prior to the early 2000s, there was not a full service grocer north of 96th Street. Other than Fairway, which Fairway being on the far west side, as you know, was really hard to get to. Um, you had to really have a car irrespective of where you live. Um, and I don't think anyone would define Fairway as, as being um, inexpensive. So when Pathmark arrived on 125th Street in the early 2000s, um, and again, go back to what I just said, think of a city the size of Denver without a full-service grocer. Without a, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Right. So um, once that occurred and you had some other arrivals, um, the demand side of the equation was so strong that it woke a lot of service providers to the fact that there were people here. There were people here with disposable income. There were people here that wanted the same things that anybody in any community would want. And what, going back to real estate, what is does that attract the capital from like institutional investor or does that? Capital comes first and then the Safeways get there? Like, how does that, what's that equation look like, a relationship? So, uh, institutional capital understands it now. Um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, it really did. Um, and to, to understand um, New York City real estate, particularly multifamily real estate, um, most of it is fragmented and the overwhelming majority of it's in the hands of individuals um, and families. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those families are multi-generational. So you have late first, second, and third generational ownership of assets. And so the business model of, of owning real estate, particularly in New York City, was a pretty defined sort of business model, which was you hold it forever, you never sell, you refinance it out in a tax-efficient manner. You put as little capital as possible into the asset and you take as much capital as possible out. Um, And so, you know, given my work in the empowerment zone and given what I saw uh, occurring in the changes, I being part of that, which is, you know, buying a brownstone and wanting to be in the neighborhood after being a newly minted MBA, um, there were a lot of people who would make the same trade from what one might define as established neighborhoods in lower Manhattan, be it Soho, Tribeca, or Upper West Side and Upper East Side, but could do so in a um, much more cost-efficient fashion, said another way, less expensive, (laughs) Um, um, and who enjoyed the neighborhood feel of Upper Manhattan because it's mostly a bedroom community. And so... um, I said, if we could acquire some of these assets, invest capital, improve them, and make them livable in the sense that any multifamily asset or any apartment building that one would move into, um, that you would feel comfortable. So uh, I never bought, never owned any asset that I personally wouldn't want to live in. And um, I've... uh, 
I've run my business and um, my career thusly, which is uh, we're buying assets that we can improve that you, myself, someone who just graduated from college, someone who just got an MBA, someone who's a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, a police person would want to live in. And if you if you go by that mantra, then the benefits, economically speaking, um, will follow. Great. Well, let's learn a little bit more about you. Um, where did you grow up? I'm a Jersey kid. So I grew up in Central Jersey, and I, I claim it proudly. I'm a Jersey kid, too. There you go. Mars, That's Mars County. Mars County. Yeah. <laughs> Somerset County. Oh, nice. Very good. Very nice. Yeah. And then did you have a, uh, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, you're a pretty successful guy in real estate, Jim. You might not know that, but you are, you know, people know, know who you are. I've seen you at conferences and everyone shakes your hand and you know, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. How did, did you have a desire to be in real estate or where did that come from? No. And, and by the way, you should tell my kids that because they don't believe <laughs> I'm much good at, at anything. Um, no, I, I can tell you, Chris, I fell into real estate. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, when I went to uh, undergrad, um, I went during a time where um, giving, and, and I defined my upbringing as um, lower middle class or um, upper poor class. I don't know how you define it. <laughs> somewhere in between. Um, so what that meant was when I went to college, uh, I had three choices. I could either be pre-med, pre-law, or engineer. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had an affinity for math and science, so I became an engineer, and that was my training. Um, I took a job in engineering out of college uh, and did that for four years. Um, what type of engineering I, were you doing? I was electrical. I was electrical engineering and computer science. So um, at the time that I went, um, it was a double major. And so um, my first job was at General Electric, and I would come home to Jersey. I was in D.C., by the way, is where I my first four years out of college. And I would come home for Thanksgiving and Christmases, and um, I would come to the city and meet with friends and they were telling me about their exploits on Wall Street and how interesting their jobs were and how great life was. And so I said, um, hey, I should give this a try. Um, and they said that um, Wall Street was at the time recruiting people with uh, quantitative backgrounds. I got a master's in engineering as well um, so I ended up transitioning from engineering to um, the street at Bankers Trust. Um, I was there for a short period of time, and then I met some people on the uh, trading desk. And I said, wow, that looks really interesting. Um, I'd like to do that. And they said, well, in order for you to do that, you need an MBA. And I said, well, I already have, I already have a master's. They said, no, you have the wrong one. <laughs> oh, shoot. So... Um, I went to uh, Kellogg in Chicago for a couple of years, um, graduated, went to Solomon Brothers, or Solomon Smith Barney. Um, I traded uh, emerging market derivatives for about three years. And through this process of learning Harlem, mm -hmm. I got introduced to 
um, a woman, her name is, is Deborah Wright, via um, um, uh, someone who was a couple of years ahead of me at Princeton, um, Roy Swan, who um, I was asking her about Harlem. And she said, hey, um, Roy is going to go back to Morgan Stanley because he took a leave of absence mm-hmm. um, from there. And would you like to join me? at the empowerment zone. I said, absolutely not. I spent the last <laughs> five years of my life trying to get on the street. Um, I am now here. I'm not going to do it. Long story short, Dick Parsons was the chair of her board. Dick, obviously, well, not, not obviously, Dick was the, the CEO of Time Warner at the time. He had a relationship with Sandy Wild and Jamie Diamond, mm-hmm. who was um, number one and number two at what was then Travelers Group, the City Group conglomerate and uh they asked if i could do them a favor and them being dick sandy jamie diamond charlie wrangle big big names and and pataki so that was the the um individuals who were involved with the empowerment zone at the time so um i could not say no to those individuals i did it on the auspices of a leave of absence which uh it culminated my being the CEO after, you know, staying there for a total of three years. I was CEO for about a year and a half, two years. That's a great story. And then being there and having an interest in Upper Manhattan, I guess you're heavily involved. The empowerment zone is heavily involved with real estate. Yes. So it, did, it, it, it does a lot of things. But what I realized when I was there is that you can't control or change a neighborhood unless you control the real estate or can effectuate change to real estate. So we got heavily involved in um, development, um, got heavily involved in bringing jobs in the community. And the way you do that is controlling real estate. So that was my introduction to real estate. Um, And through that, um, I met a bunch of people within the real estate ecosystem, one of which being the principals at um, Apollo Real Estate Advisors then, which was um, Richard Mack and his, his father, Bill Mack. Yeah. And that's so, yeah, that's, and that's where I come in. No, I'm kidding. That's, and that's and that's when I first uh, uh, heard of you. Uh, you're like I said, you were doing a bunch of stuff in Upper Manhattan, and so you at the empowerment zone. You were, I guess, you had to have relationships with different developers to, to come in there. Were you trying to entice them to to do business? There? Exactly, exactly. Um, what what we realized was that in order to um, upgrade the housing, bring goods and services that at the prior two weren't there um, that we really need to connect deeply with the real estate community and use our dollars, lever our dollars to entice them to come to build. So we focused on 125th street corridor, 116th street corridor, 145th street corridor, um, and really creating very vibrant um, retail and office um, quarters. Um, and residential quarters at that. So that was part of our focus. We also bolstered the cultural communities. So um, groups like um, Dance Theater of Harlem, Harlem School of the Arts, um, Studio Museum in Harlem. Um, we worked with them. We gave them grants um, and the like. But we tried to really create a, a full-fledged community that, you know, you wouldn't have to leave Upper Manhattan to get anything you want if you wanted to a good dinner, if you wanted a good show, if you wanted to have to go shopping uh, for food or for clothes that you could do 
everything that you need to do north of 96th Street. So, uh, so getting into uh, you know Apollo, I mean, invest, investing in you know your real estate private equity firm, it was a very, I mean, it was a very desirable place to work. At least when I first was introduced to them, I mean, a lot of people wanted to work there. Uh, high-level talent. How did you transition from a derivatives trader to a real estate investor? I mean, it's a different, it's somewhat same as skill set, but a lot of different skill set too, right? I mean, how how did that happen? Uh, you know, I give I give much of the credit to my training as an engineer. Uh, being an engineer teaches you how to think and how to problem solve, and to the extent that you can do that, um, you can apply it across many different fields. And real estate is just solving a problem, which is how do I get something built? Um, how do I make it better? How do I um, improve the lives of my tenants? Um, if you can, if you can fit it in a in a formula, or do something that is formulaic, um, then it's easy for an engineer to understand. So I'm not saying that it was the transition was easy, but it was um, a learning curve, and, and I had really good people who were, who were my, uh, my teachers. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you obviously went to good schools at Princeton and, and Kellogg, but I'm sure there are probably many, as far as a recruiter, I get a lot of people from other industries, not real estate, trying to get into real estate, like engineers or lawyers. And they don't want to be engineers anymore. They don't want to be lawyers anymore. They want to be real estate investors. Um, I mean, obviously you're extremely intelligent and you've went to good schools, but it seems like a lot of it was more, a lot of soft skills set, right? I mean, you created relationships with people and they wanted to work with you. Is that, is, is that right? Yeah. Um, the good and bad of real, about real estate is that it is 80 to 90% relationship driven. And it's good when you are in the club because you can with one or two calls get to whoever you want to you can get your phone calls answered you have entree into worlds in which others may not the bad is if you're outside looking in it's really difficult to get into that club and i, I don't even profess to be in the club per se i'm, I'm on the outskirts of the club um but what I can say, and this this will lead to another discussion, which is, okay, how do we attack the issues that we have with diversity within real estate? And I believe that you have to start very young and to get people enthusiastic about the prospects of being within the real estate ecosystem. Um, and so for a kid who is in college, who's about to graduate or actually when he's in college, he or she is in college, it's, well, instead of thinking about doing M&A at Goldman or Morgan Stanley, I'm going to think about doing real estate at an Apollo or a Blackstone or at a KKR or some other shop. Um, and that story is just now starting to be told because the entree into these roles before was 100% about who you know, even at that level. So it was my nephew my nephew's roommate, my niece, my daughter, my son, those were the people who were taking those jobs in the probably 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way to the early 2000s. Only now has the path been 
a little bit more formalized where you can say, okay, if you go to a good school, you do well, you can go to an investment bank in their real estate group. You can learn how to underwrite transactions. Then you can go to the buy side. You can go to a PE shop. You can start out as an, an analyst slash associate and work your way up. That path wasn't immediately, it wasn't so much there 20 years ago. And even if it was, it wasn't immediately known to people that that path was, was there. And I think it's, it's um, a, a better lit path today, but it's still a path that's, that's not well-worn by minorities and, and, and women for that. Matter. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I, definitely real estate has become more of an institutional asset class. I mean, you can see it like universities are trying to take advantage of it by creating real estate programs and um, it's popping up everywhere. Uh, you, yeah, you mentioned the diversity aspect. I, um, I get requests from clients that are looking for diversity candidates. And frankly, it's like you said, it's not, there aren't many. It's not like there's like, at least people are trying. I, it's not like I'm not trying to recruit diversity candidates. Um, I would, there's just a lack of them, I think. And I think there needs to be some sort of, I don't know, I guess seeing people at the, at the top of organizations to be examples or something um, to attract the younger people. Um, and also I, I, there is like an un, I forget the, what's the word, the un uh, whatever bias where they ask for diversity candidates and they see them, but then they end up hiring the guys that look like them anyways, right? My opinion is I think that um, firms should be trying to hire and attract really good candidates, period. However, to broaden the playing field of how they look for those candidates. And so if you go into any large firm and you ask them where they recruit from, the list is probably going to be five different places that they recruit from. And those are the five different places they've been recruiting from for the last 20 years. Um, I, I think that, you know, as I look at the people who have worked for me over the years, um, what you really wanted are, are a couple of, of traits more so than pedigree, right? Which is, is a person smart? Are they intelligent? Can they understand what knowledge we are trying to impart, how we actually generate returns for our investors? Can they... Do they have the acumen? Number one. Number two, are they diligent? Are they hardworking? Are they going to be the first one in the office and are they going to be the last one in the office? And those traits are not um, relegated to the people. And despite the fact that I went to a Princeton, so a Harvard, Princeton, Yale, it, it, it's, it's not just people who go to those institutions who have those traits. Those traits are, are widely distributed. But the, the, the issue is, are you looking in those other places to find those types of individuals? And I've actually found that the people who are the hungriest are those who have a chip on their shoulder and those who have something to prove who may not have gone to those types of institutions. So are firms going to the HBCUs? Are they going to schools that perhaps... Um, are not defined as um, top 30 in the country 
to find individuals. And is it easy? No, but it, but you know, um, here's, here's how I draw the analogy. If you have someone who is at a firm who went to a school that I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick Rutgers, for example. Right. So if you went to Rutgers, what effort are you going to put into finding kids who are smart, bright, diligent, who come out of Rutgers to help them along? You're going to take that extra step, I'm sure. So if you treat um, people who may not have access to the direct pathways to a real estate career in the same manner, which says, I'm just going to do that little extra effort to, instead of say Rutgers, throw in another school's name, where you may be more prone to find someone who is a woman or someone who's a color, then it's just doing a little bit more. And we do it all the time. We just don't do it consciously. Correct. Yeah. And it's about, yeah, expanding that, that pool. Um, I, I know one of my friends runs HR at a big investment shop and they're starting to do their, they, you know, they do on, they, they traditionally do you know Cornell and Penn and stuff like that. But now they're getting into, they're realizing, Oh, holy smokes. We do have a diversity problem. <laughs> and, uh, they're starting to get into like Morehouse and Hampton and stuff like that. Uh, but then they're calling, she's calling, you know, Morehouse or, and realizing that Morehouse doesn't really have anything set up internally to ha- like to bring, they're not used to having places like them come on campus. Right. So they don't really have people in, you know, internally set, you know, structured to handle that. So they got to set that up a little bit too. So it's kind of, uh, it's just fascinating that, um, it seems like such a, a good way to improve diversity, but no one's really thought of it. Or I know I didn't until this person told me, I'm like, Oh shit. Because it's like, how do you find more diverse candidates? Like, well, go to the place where there's more diverse people. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, fascinating. What about the, uh, I wanted to ask you, because you do a, you're doing a lot in the northern Manhattan, um, the affordability issue in America. Have you, have you, is there any things that are being addressed in real estate to that issue? Uh, it's a really complex and tough issue. And um, I've dealt with it in some way, shape, or form over uh, the better part of my career. Um, And it's um, something that most cities grapple with. Um, When you look at the reurbanization of America since the, uh, I would say the early 90s, um, when cities started to look inward and say, if we are going to compete well, hey, we have to compete with the suburbs because first you had um, people leave for the suburbs who would have previously lived in the city. And I'm a perfect example of that. Um, I grew up in Somerset. My dad commuted into Manhattan every day, an hour and 20 minutes each way for probably 15 years out of his 30 year career. and that was because it wasn't because he would not, he and my mother would not have liked to have lived in a home, but they felt that raising myself, my sister in central Jersey was a better environment for us to be brought up in. Um, cities recognize that and they recognize, Hey, if we don't change, not only are we going to lose the people, but we're going to lose the business too. And corporate headquarters are going to start relocating as some did. 
uh, out in the suburbs. Well, most cities got it right. Um, if you look at New York, if you look at San Francisco, you look at Chicago, Los Angeles, they got it right in the sense that most cities are very livable today compared to what they were back then. Boston, D.C., um, such that it's very desirable to be in a city. Um, a lot of people, if not most people, if they had their druthers, wouldn't want to spend an hour, an hour and a half, 40 minutes even commuting. Right? My commute, my office is finite every day. I mean, I don't care what happens. It's not going to take me any longer than 30 minutes to get in my office. Um, if I lived on the other side of GWB, it might take me four hours, yeah. depending on what's going on. Yeah. So um, as cities started to get that right, um, and as people started to want to stay closer to jobs, Areas that were depopulated started to be repopulated. And you can say Upper Manhattan is one. You can say Fort Greene in Brooklyn. You can say Flushing in Queens. I mean, all of these micro neighborhoods started to attract people. And it was really driven by younger individuals. Mm -hmm. And so as that started to happen, you you have a supply, which is finite. You have demand, which grows, so therefore prices increase, rents increase. Um, as you bring goods and services, neighborhoods become more desirable, and then you have price increases. It's a fine line to walk between saying that I, because I live in Upper Manhattan, should have the same, uh, I should have the same goods and services available to me as if I lived on the Upper West Side. Versus someone who's lived here for 40 years and on a fixed income can't afford to pay their taxes any longer. So I think you property taxes to the extent that they own um, and to the extent that they rent, that there is some mechanism to keep those individuals here. I think the problem that we have is while rent stabilization, rent control is a laudable idea of how it's implemented, it just doesn't work. Because it, it does not, there's no correlation by, between how much someone makes and can afford to pay and what they pay in rent. So it is, it is a lottery where if you're in a unit and you've been there for a long period of time, you pay a low rent just because you've been there for a long period of time. You could be a billionaire yeah. but still paying a very low rent. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, if you equalize that and said, we really should be subsidizing the people who can't afford it, as opposed to those who can, then I think it will be a fairer and more equitable system. But I don't know if that'll ever come to pass. Um, And I think you need to have some form of homesteader, long time, um, you know, tax relief or abatement for people who are on fixed incomes or people who are seniors or people who've been in communities for a long period of time. Um, The brownstone I'm in today, um, let's, let's fast forward 20 years from now um, whatever it'll be worth, the taxes will skyrocket. If my, you know, I'm on a fixed income, um, maybe I won't be able to afford to stay here. And that's not a good outcome. Mm-hmm. So I think some, some intelligent problem solving where, um, you know, the, the electeds as well as the business community and you take politics off the table and say, okay, we're here to actually solve problems then I think that you can come out with some worthwhile solutions. It's also easy to circumvent that rent 
control if you're just not, you know, you're not managing the people, whoever owns it, it's not managing it correctly. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not like proud or not proud, but I was living in a, uh, illegally rent. I was living illegally in one of those places, and, but the owner or the person who was supposed to be renting it out, I was paying her an extra $400 a month in cash and writing her a check. Like I suppose, and I, and she said, if someone, if someone comes to your knocks on the door, tell them you're my nephew and no one ever checked my ID. Yeah. Listen, there's uh, we live in a capital society. So wherever there's an arbitrage, someone will try to, to exploit it. So, you know, she had a, a below market rent. Uh, she, um, you had a need, which was you need an apartment and you were willing to pay whatever the, you know, the market yeah. was. And she popped in. It was, it was still a lot below market when I was paying her, but yeah, I mean, it, it was just, uh, if the, yeah, whoever wanted to, whoever owned that building could have just, all they had to do was like knock on my door. Yeah. Well, again, going back to the original, some of the original points I made, um, that's not a part of the business plan. The business plan is, is the check in the mail. That's all you care about is, is am I getting my cash flow every month and whatever happens to the, to the property? I don't really, that is secondary on my concern, uh, my concern. So what, what's the, what's happening next with Aslan? Are you uh, expanding? Are you getting into new markets? Yeah. So, so um, we are growing where it's an exciting period of time for the firm. Um, we have uh, three assets, two here in New York, one in um, the Washington, D.C. metro area. Um, they are existing assets with um, development potential on one or two of them. So we're in the process of um, a, um, um, an entitlement process in uh, Northern Virginia uh, in concert with uh, the local uh, domicile where we're going to expand affordability. We're going to preserve um, for uh, long-term um, affordable units that were at risk, and we're going to expand that. Um, so we think it's going to be an outstanding outcome. Um, we believe very, very, very strongly in mixed-income communities. Uh, I don't believe that communities should be monolithic, where you should have... Um, Poor communities, rich communities, poor buildings, rich buildings. I think that um, the, the best way to stabilize communities is to have a, a healthy mix of um, people who are higher income and, and people who um, may be lower income, but that um, all boats row in the same direction. And... Um, the project that I'm, that I'm speaking of, that's exactly what we're looking to accomplish, which is to provide, and by the way, our affordable tenants, our affordable units, the tenants who are in them, will avail themselves of all the benefits of having a Class A building. Yeah. So the pool, the gym, you know, the concierge service, whatever we have in that asset, um, everyone will have benefit of, uh, of it being in the building not just people who make over $200,000 a year. And I think that the democratization of, of living standards is what we are aiming for. And using higher income, higher revenue individuals to subsidize lower income, lower revenue individuals, I think is a path to solving some of the, the issues that we see today.
And how is it being the uh, founder and managing partner and CEO? I mean, you've uh, been CEO before and senior level people, but you founded Asin, right? How is it? You created something from scratch. Yeah, it just how, it's, how's it, that going? It means you, <laughs> you get blamed for everything that goes wrong, and you don't take any credit for anything that goes right. <laughs> um, no, That's I, wonderful. It, it's it's been great, um, and uh, the. The positives are that we are creating jobs. Um, we are positively affecting people's lives. Um, I am, um, I hope, uh, fulfilling the dreams of my parents, which was, you know, ownership is the key to, um, you know, wealth creation. Um, not only for myself, but for my children and family and for, you know, people who uh, work with me. Um, and that at the same time, we're, we're doing uh, good while we're doing well. So um, it's tremendously exciting. I don't sleep. Um, uh, you you helped me find um, one of uh one of my star and employees, so you know how it is oh, good. building from, from scratch. Um, but uh, I hope that everyone is, is happy, fulfilled, um, and um, is thrilled to go to work every day. You know, we're not going to work every day because we're working from home, but <laughs> to wake up and get in front of their computer screen and, and start with uh, fulfilling our, our mission. Appreciate the shout out. That sounds great. Um, congratulations on all your success. We're going to move on to the next segment. It's called the Hot Seat. Are you ready? Sure. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs. HR services and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great, uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. All right. All right. Any books that you recommend? Yeah, sure. Um, one of my favorites is a, is a classic and it's topical because uh, a movie is about to be released, uh, which is tuned by Frank Herbert, one of my classic favorites. Um, Another one is uh, that I've just started reading um, is Begin Again by uh, my good friend Eddie Glaude um, at Princeton University. And it's about, um, talks about the life of James Baldwin. Um, Nickel Boys is great fiction by Colson Whitehead. And one book I really liked was Educated um, by Tara Westover. I do not know these last two, but I'll check them out. Do you listen to podcasts at all? Any podcast um, I do, I do, I do. Malcolm Gladwell. I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. I, I religiously listen to his. 
So yeah, he's interesting. He's a he's got a good perspective on things. I love his books too. I do, I do. Um, you know, he he's doing something really interesting. Um, he has his his company that um, they're doing. I would define it as full immersion podcasts. So it is music interspersed with direct interviews with individuals interspersed with sound effects, um, historical recordings. Um, it's a much richer experience than just someone talking to you or at you. This is it's not like this podcast. Uh, right. I'm, I'm for, for me personally, I'm, I'm bored. I'm bored. So you may need to, you may need to add some, some sound effects to this to, uh, awake here. I could do it with my mouth. Right. Boing. Right. <laughs> no, he's great. He's I mean those those podcasts are a whole other level of of yeah, they're they're an experience. You're right. Um what do you like to do outside of work besides run marathons? Uh so both of my kids are athletes. So I spend a tremendous amount of time on a field on the sidelines. Uh, my daughter is a lacrosse player. My son plays both lacrosse and baseball. So um, he uh, he pitched his first game yesterday since we left in uh, in the fall. Yeah, we left in in March. So actually, since last fall. So it's been a year since he. Oh, cool. Congrats. Is he the older or the younger of the siblings? He is the younger. He's a ten year old. All right. Cool. Same age as my yeah. kid. You gotta get them together. Yeah, I my yeah we our New York trip. He used my son's big in acting, so our he does Broadway camps for the summer, but not this year, right. unfortunately. Um, what advice would you give to your twenty year old self? Oh, my twenty year old. I know it was a long time ago, Jim. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I would say buy everything that you can as early as you can. Um. I was uh, 30-something when I bought the house that I'm in today. Um, I would have bought, and exactly that. Um, I, when I moved from, from Washington to New York, uh, I moved into a brownstone with three other of my, of my good friends. We shared, we shared a brownstone. And it was owned by a doctor, and he offered to sell it to us. And he offered to sell to us for like 160 grand, something, something ridiculous in Fort Greene, prime Fort Greene. And we were, you know, we were young. So we were like, we're not going to pay that for this house. I mean, the, the boiler would break. And like, it was a, it was a, it was a bad brownstone, but um, I drove by it probably a year ago. And I think that brownstone today is probably worth about four or $5 million. Um, so my advice would be buy everything that anything that you can as soon as you can and hold on to it. Like those families did, right? That's right. That, that is, that is a hundred percent, hundred percent true. I'll tell another, another quick story, which is when, when I realized um, how great New York city real estate can be. Um, I was selling an asset here um, in New York city and I, uh, we had run a marketing process 
and I'd settled on two institutional buyers and I got a call from a friend who said, um, I have someone who's interested in your property. You don't know them, but I'm going to vouch for them. You should just take the call. It's a person. Um, it's an individual, but you should take the call. So I took the call and uh, I said, listen, I'm way down the, the road with, uh, with these potential buyers. Um, you're going to have to, and, and I knew these buyers as well. So I knew that they were, they were going to perform. And so this individual, I said, um, I really am not interested in having you tie this asset up, get on the contract and then either retrade me or not close. Um, and so he said, listen, I know you don't know me, but I'm going to send you, um, my financial statements, one of my accounts, which will demonstrate my ability to close this. And so this was, uh, an individual and, and he said, uh, and his account sent over a statement, which had, and this was a self-made individual. This was not family money, but it had significant liquid net worth to be able to acquire this asset and he could have bought it all cash. And this person had been just investing in real, New York real estate for about 15 years or so. And I said, if, if someone can amass that amount of wealth in 15 years, um, what could I have done if I started when I was in my 20s? Right? If I started buying brownstones in Brooklyn and then graduating to, you know, walk-up buildings and then to elevator buildings and then to, you know, the path that people take, um, where would I be if I started then? So um, that led me to, to believe that, A, I was in the right space in real estate, B, that I should go out on my own and C, that if I was 20 years old, I should tell myself to buy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my father grew up in, uh, in Queens and he was going, he was being recruited by Stevens in Hoboken. Uh -huh. He's an en engineer as well. And, so uh, I had the funny story. I spent my summers at Stevens Tech for four years in my high school. They had a summer program, okay. had a summer program to introduce kids to engineering. So... I know Stevens very, very well. Well, he ended up going to Lehigh because I think he just liked, uh, he went there on some fall day and they, the foliage was nice or something he said, but he was, I think him and his friends were thinking about my, his grandfather, my grandfather is a, was a owner of apartments and single family developer in Long Island and Queens. But he was thinking about buying buildings in Hoboken and uh, he didn't do it because it was too slummy back then, right? Yeah. He's like, man, I wish I bought some buildings in Hoboken. I said, I wish you bought some buildings in Hoboken too. Yeah. Hoboken <laughs> was a mess. I mean, I, I remember walking from Stevens to uh, the path train and you had to be, you had to have your wits about you because there was a lot going on in Hoboken back then. So, <laughs> yeah. You just never know where it's going to pop up, right? It seems so obvious today. Oh, it's right across right. the Hudson yeah. from the city. How could it not turn into like a... Yeah, but I guess back then. Uh, now, what do you... I am a recruiter, as you know. Some people on this might be looking for tips on to get jobs or something. Like, what do you look for in hiring people? What kind of qualities? Uh, um, I think I hired a couple of them um, previously, but... Um, you have to you have to have intellectual curiosity, 
So you have to want to learn. Uh, you have to continually press yourself to understand everything about everything. Um, I, I, I tell people who work for me, read everything that you can. Like the, the transactions that we do, it is boring to sit there and read a, some loan docs that's that thick, but you should read them because you should understand what's in them because I know what's in them. And that's something that I learned very early in my career, which is not everybody wants to do that. So if I can be the one, or if you can be the one who understands those documents like the back of your hand, then you're value add. Um, so intellectual curiosity. Number two is, is just diligence and hard work and, and, and being about doing whatever it takes to get the job done. Um, when, when I graduated from Kellogg and I went to... Um, was then Solomon Smith Barney. Uh, I said to myself that I no one was going to outwork me. No one was going to be in the office before me. No one was going to leave later than I was. And I was going to have at least the opportunity to be on whatever desk I wanted to, and that would that they would want me. And so that type of diligence is what it takes to succeed. Um, if you pair the two intellectual curiosity with the diligence, then you're bound to succeed and people will notice you. So um, those are the two things I was saying, and perseverance. Um, mm -hmm. Landing a job um, on the street taught me that you just have to be, uh, many times, not sometimes, you just have to be a bulldog. You just have to say, I'm, I'm not going to take no for an answer from from everyone. So um, that'll get you in the door. That'll, you know, people respect that. I, I had someone that I hired for a summer who literally sent me emails and called me for probably three weeks just to have a, a meeting to potentially work with me or for me as an intern for the summer. Now, I'm a startup. So A, I didn't have the money to pay him. B, I didn't have the space for him to go into. Um, but given the lengths that he went to, and everybody that I knew was calling me to tell me <laughs> that I should meet with this guy. Mm -hmm. And I said, if you can do that, the least that I can do is find a way to, to help propel your career. So I hired him for that summer. Um, he did a great job. He ended up going to Wharton. Um, he is graduating this year and he's going to be in real estate at a big firm starting, you know, in September in theory, right? But point being, his perseverance is what got my attention. And I said, there's no way that I can I'm going to do a double negative. There's no way that I can't not help him. There's no way that I can't do that because people have helped me along the way. Yeah. Good answer. Very good answer. Good example. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Jim Simmons, managing partner and CEO at Aslan Capital Partners. Thank you for your time. That was great. I appreciate it. Good seeing you. Thank you for having me.